If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Coming up on this week's Equity, we'll be talking about cars, China-based companies coming to the U.S., and a new IPO filing that has some folks in Silicon Valley scratching their heads. It's almost that time of the year again. Disrupt SF is right around the corner and will literally be bigger and better than ever. We've outgrown the various piers that line the bay and have moved the show to Moscone West. Panels across two stages will include Aileen Lee, Reed Hoffman, Ellie Wheeler, Ashton Kutcher, Ben Horowitz, and Priscilla Chan, just to name a few. Sounds like a great lineup to us. And because we love you, our dear Equity listeners, we have a discount code just for you. Head on over to techcrunch.com slash events slash disrupt dash SF dash 2018 and enter code equity for 15% off the main ticket price. What savings? I'm TechCrunch's Silicon Valley editor, Connie Loises. Joining me from an undisclosed location in Arizona is TechCrunch's wonderful transportation reporter, Kirsten Korosek. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're also excited to have here in our studio slash podcast dungeon, Laura Kaladny, a partner with the early stage San Francisco-based venture firm Aspect Ventures. Lauren, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Guys, let's start off with Tesla and its inimitable CEO, Elon Musk, who several weeks ago announced on Twitter that he was taking the company private, then announced last Friday night that he was not taking the company public. Then earlier this week, got into a Twitter fight with a former TechCrunch editor, Drew Olinoff, over whether or not he cried recently during a New York Times interview. Kirsten, you know the company better than anyone on staff. Has Musk lost his marbles? What is going on here? (laughs) I've been covering the company for, I want to say, let's see, five, five years now. And, you know, no, <laughs> is the, the, the short answer to your question. Um, Elon's pretty unpredictable guy. He says what he wants to say when he says it to the unfortunate. He's, I think he's probably gone through a number of communications directors over at Tesla for a reason. It's a super high stress job. In fact, their head of comms now, Sarah O'Brien, is leaving. She's really not at the company anymore. And a new person has taken that role. And that's a role that maybe folks last about one to two years tops. It's it's high stress for a reason. And a big part of that is Elon speaks his mind and he's very active on Twitter, oftentimes at one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's it must be it must drive the board to distraction. Of course, he's the chairman of the board, um, but you know from what I've read, they have sort of repeatedly asked him to stop talking so much on Twitter. I did see that he deactivated his Instagram account, but uh, judging by the fact that he was back on this week, uh, you know, sort of talking about um, a variety of things that he probably shouldn't have been talking about, uh, he has no plans to abandon Twitter. Yeah, I would say that that's a a good bet. In Instagram, he really didn't use very often. Sometimes he used it to publicize, you know, the flamethrower that he was going to, or something with a boring company, maybe a little travel here and there, but it really wasn't um, a place he was super active on. Twitter is something that he is on quite a bit. And uh, yeah, I think that the board has has struggled with that, but uh, Elon's not one who can be really controlled. I think that if you look at the difference between SpaceX and Tesla, two companies, of course, uh, or run by Elon, the big difference is that Gwynne Shotwell over at SpaceX really 
is able to steer that company and sort of keep things, I think, in a in a place that is less unpredictable while still being innovative. And Tesla mm-hmm. has yet to have someone like that. There has been rumors and you know, and, and sources who have told me over the years that there has been at different times active and and not so active searches for basically a COO, but that has yet to happen. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it would be very hard for him to sort of relinquish control. Lauren, what do you think? Have you been following this at all? Yeah, I've been following it. I mean, I think it's clear that his announcement about funding was inaccurate. And I, I, I agree. I think that um, he he needs someone else there working next to him as a, as a partner. I think, you know, there's been lots of speculation over you know, the last few years that there really isn't anyone there to replace him if that ever needed to happen. And I think, you know, as a good leader, you have to be cultivating people from within. And I I think that um, Tesla needs that particularly now. It's impossible to imagine Tesla without Elon Musk, frankly. I mean, if he were to be removed, I think that sort of, first of all, I don't even think the SEC has confirmed publicly that it's investigating him. Um, But, you know, one thing they could do is, I guess, you know, ask him to be sort of removed or, uh, you know, I don't know, not demoted, but um, to switch positions. Uh, yeah, but that, that's impossible to to fathom. What I think is interesting, the, the journal had written this piece maybe on Monday. It was sort of like a TikTok looking at what happened from the time that he announced that funding was secured uh, to take the company private to the point where he decided he was, wasn't going to take the company pi- private. And I think one of its conclusions was he kind of was faced with this uh, reality that if he were to work with institutional investors, he would have, um, you know, I guess sort of more people poking into his business. One of the the um, outfits that was inv- interested in investing in the company was Volkswagen, for example. And I think he just thought, you know, well, why should they get the halo effect of being associated with Tesla? And also, I don't want them sort of, you know, being privy to what we're working on here. Um, so it's interesting that such a brilliant guy, I guess, was so sort of quick to act, you know, talking to advisors kind of came to realize it was really not uh, something that he should be entertaining. So Connie, when you say privy to are what are, are you talking about sort of like some proprietary information that that Tesla sure. might have. I mean, I think right now he has millions of, you know, shareholders like you and me, although I'm not specifically a shareholder, but you know, <laughs> if you were to I. take the company <laughs> if you were to take the company private, you know, I think Silver Lake was interested, Volkswagen, these companies would be taking sort of sizable stakes and I would assume that they would get maybe information rights that he wasn't particularly comfortable with. Sure. Outside of the you know, going from public to private, it it is a different kind of information. Obviously, uh, if you're a shareholder, you or, or anyone who can navigate SEC's website is can, can become privy to you know official public filings, but proprietary information is oftentimes you know under wraps, and and that might have been the issue. I'm just as Lauren noted, there is a big question mark as to whether funding was ever even secured. I mean, Elon is known for throwing information out there that may or may not be accurate. Sometimes it is, and sometimes there's a big question mark. On next to it, and and since no other company came out publicly to to really back that up, it's impossible to really know if there was any validity to that. 
to that uh, point, I think the journal story also talked about Saudi Arabia and the fact that it was looking at the time that he tweeted into a competing investment and is also sort of spending a lot of money developing a, a city in the desert. So I think it wasn't necessarily <laughs> quite on board with his, his you know, definition of secured. But speaking of cars, another uh, and partnerships, I should say, uh, Toyota is making a $500 million investment in Uber. Right. Lauren, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's really smart. I mean, as I as I see it, you know, this is another example of kind of the disintermediation of hardware and software and autonomy, you know, not unlike the Waymo Fiat Chrysler partnership. Mm-hmm. And I and I think about that as being, you know, this approach is more like the the Google Android approach to, you know, Tesla's Apple approach. And I think it's it signals to me that, you know, Uber is becoming a more mature company. You know, Dara has been cleaning house and, you know, I think really doubling down on the core autonomy program. And I think that Toyota is a great partner. Uh, They've been lagging on autonomy, but clearly want to get into the space. They're huge behemoth. And, you know, they've started to make moves. I mean, they made a billion dollar investment earlier this year into Grab, which is, you know, a Southeast Asian Uber competitor. And they'd actually also already invested a small amount, I believe, into Uber previously. But I think that the the combination of the two makes a lot of sense. And, you know, to me as an early stage investor, I think it's interesting because it's starting to show that auto manufacturers will give up some control in what used to be a pretty mm-hmm. closed end-to-end system for auto manufacturing. And so I think it opens up opportunities for new tech companies to come in and provide different layers of the stack. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Toyota is such an interesting company to me because on the one hand, they actually have at least talked about and putting a billion or more dollars into Toyota Research Institute, which is based here in, in California, actually, their pursuit of autonomy is sort of twofold. It's different than a lot of other companies. And I'm very curious to see how this relationship with Uber is going to evolve. Because if you look at the dynamics of this partnership, it's $500 million into Uber. And then they say separately, although I would guess that these were combined, separately that they're going to work together on bringing the full stack, Uber's full stack, onto these Toyota Sienna minivans, but that a third party would own and operate them. And it's not clear who that third party would be, but that Uber would not own these vehicles. So it's a little different than Uber's relationship with Volvo. And then on top of that, as I mentioned, Toyota has this sort of twofold approach to autonomy. One is what they call Guardian, which is essentially operating the background or their their vision is to have it operate in the background of production vehicles to sort of take over. Let's say if you're approaching an intersection and something bad is about to happen. And the other pursuit is chauffeur, which is far off in the future. And it's really geared towards level four autonomy. So essentially the, the assumption is that the, the passenger would be truly a passenger, that there wouldn't be a driver and there wouldn't be any need to take over. And that's what TRI is sort of working on. So I'm really curious how Toyota's dual pursuits and all this money they put in are going to then be affected by this relationship with Uber. And Lauren, I don't know, or Connie, if you have an opinion on that. But that to me is what I'm going to be watching for. 
do we know how much, uh, you know, what Toyota sort of is getting for its money? I mean, when you pour $500 million into Uber, it doesn't really mean that much, considering how much money the money has, has excuse me, how much money the company has raised. Also, um, I, this is a story that I didn't follow closely. Do we know if it was it, it was valued at a certain price point, perhaps above where it was valued when SoftBank made it, its investment earlier this year? Yeah, it's slightly above. I think it's about 15% above. It's at 15%? Yeah, wow. so it's $72 billion is the valuation. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the valuation is definitely, I mean, to me, Uber is really gets a lot out of this. A question that I actively asked other folks was, what does Toyota get out of this? Because they already, as I mentioned, are pursuing their their own autonomous development. So it could be a signal that they aren't as far ahead as they would like. It's totally possible that that is the case. But for Uber, they get this reputation boost coming off of this fatal self-driving vehicle crash mm-hmm. in March. And it really is a p- big part of, I think, of what Dara is trying to do in terms of creating real signals in, in showing that Uber is a company that is one that embraces safety, Toyota being the perfect brand for that. And, right. um, and also heading towards potentially an IPO. That all makes sense. I'm just not sure about why Toyota. <laughs> Interesting. I guess we'll see how that plays out. Um, there is another car company that we could talk about t- today, which I don't think a lot of listeners probably know all that much about yet, but may well if things go well for the company. It's called Neo. It's a China-based electronic, excuse me, electric vehicle maker that is planning to launch a stock sale here that could raise up to $1.32 billion. Now, the Shanghai company is sort of a rival to Tesla, and it's kind of its financial picture is sort of the same in that it it's it's younger it's uh, i think 4 years old it just introduced its first production car model last year a 7 seater i think it's delivered like 500 vehicles and it says it's got about like 15,000 um, unfulfilled reservations it's losing a lot of money i think it generated 7 million in the first half of this year and reported a net loss of roughly half a billion dollars kirsten is this a company that you've been following i mean you know th- there's so much going on in china i think there's something like 500 electric vehicle startups there or something insane like that? I, there I don't are a ton. Really know how I mean, stacks yeah, up. There, are, there are a ton and I can't keep track of all of them. But yeah, the vehicle that you're talking about is the ES8. Mm-hmm. It's a SUV. And it was debuted, I believe it was December of, la- of last year. So less than a year ago. And you're right, they are losing a lot of money. And they're different though. And I, I always push back when I hear Tesla killer and things like that because Mm-hmm. Yes, Tesla has only had two profitable quarters in its history, but it does make money. I mean, it does bring in revenue. Neo, that has yet to, they're so new that that has yet to occur. So I'm not seeing, I'll talk and sort of start using that analogy or whatever once they start launching vehicles and they're in customers' hands. Neo is also unique in that they have a US arm. And you see that a lot with some Chinese automakers. They will. They will either launch in they will launch in China and have offices here in the U.S. and sometimes vice versa, where it, it, it's a, a auto tech centric uh, company that launches in California with a lot of Chinese money backing it. And, and there's a number of them. In fact, one is going to be coming here uh, soon is Byton, and they are based in China. They are working with a startup company called Aurora, which is. We know them in the autonomy space because Chris Ermson is the CEO and founder, and he's from Google Self-Driving Project. They're also building this electric SUV. They should be coming into California 
by the end of the year and they'll be testing self-driving systems on them. So that's just two examples. Neo is really interesting because they're going public, of course. And I'm really curious to see how the public reacts, if investors really bite at this. Uh, Lauren, I don't know if you've followed Neo at all. I'm curious what you think of this company. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, Kirsten. I think, I mean, you said Tesla has only had two quarters of profitability. I think, you know, Neo has two quarters of operational history. <laughs> I mean, I think so. It's it's just it's so unusual in that sense. And I think, you know, the reported deal would be a multiple of a thousand times trailing sales, which I just can't even fathom. So it's a wacky deal. But I think that, you know, if you look at the, the company for a moment, I guess I do think that the um, and you know more about this than I do, but the China electric vehicle market is pretty interesting. I mean, the demand is extremely strong. And I think in, in 2017, it was about three times the size of the U.S. in sales volume and the growth rate is higher and relatively big market for Tesla, China. And um, and then, you know, in light of some of the recent tariff regulations, Tesla is becoming even more inaccessibly priced in, in China. And this is a more reasonable price point across the board. So I, I think that they're in an interesting space and the Chinese headquarters, I think, makes them well positioned. But this IPO is pretty unusual. It is wacky. They do have some great uh, backers, though. Sequoia Capital is one of them. Tencent is one of them. Um, Hill House, which is, I think, basically like a Hill House Capital Group, like a private equity firm there. I think it owns a huge stake in the company. Uh, I think the founder and CEO may own something like 50% 50% or 50% of the voting shares. But to your point, Lauren, so this com- this car is much more affordable. It starts at about $68,000, which is half the price of a Tesla Model X in China. But I think auto analysts are sort of wondering, like, is that, you know, sufficiently compelling? Kirsten, have you studied the market? Like, do you think like price sensitivity is something to focus on? Well, here? I mean, it, price sensitivity is part of it. But if you have a compelling enough car, people will pay. People are buying more expensive vehicles in, in China. So I think that that's just a piece of it. And, and Tesla has actually worked out an agreement with the Chinese government to build a factory there. And unlike virtually every, I mean, this is going to be a part of future deals for other automakers as well. But, you know, historically, you had to have a, a JV, a joint venture with a Chinese company. And Tesla has laid the groundwork to move forward with building a factory without a joint venture, which would allow them to to truly have control over over the factory there and have a, a vehicle that's in line with potentially maybe not the neo vehicle, but at least not incredibly expensive due to tariff issue. I think mm-hmm. that the bigger thing is is that generally speaking, before you produce your first car, you will need at least a billion dollars, and then more so to build a factory, to do all the tooling that's involved, and so. I kind of wonder, I mean, I'm curious as to whether either of you think that the IPO is a little too early. I mean, obviously the benefit is that they will have access to more money, but, that capital. but, but whether mm-hmm. they can, but, but whether they could have gone to private investors instead, I mean, it, it is, it is not a cheap thing building a vehicle. And I always joke like building cars is hard and marketing them is, is not as hard. And so that first car is truly very expensive. They're going to need a lot of access to capital. It's a great point. I mean, especially with, you know, so much money sloshing around. We talk, you know, every week seemingly about SoftBank. Now, I think, did I see that SoftBank had sort of kicked the tires of Neo and decided yeah, to pass they for did. some? Yeah, reportedly has um, was looking um, at Neo and, and apparently has, has backed off from that. 
it sounds that maybe that they're interested in the electric vehicle market and that the mm-hmm. Neo didn't necessarily fit the bill. Of course, they could change their minds again, right? We don't, we won't really know. Sure. And there's so much jockeying too. Like this could be SoftBank trying to scare off, you know, other potential investors. You just never really know what's going on. But um, it's interesting that that's sort of now public that they were looking at it and that, that they are not. But um, w- another thing sort of related to Neo that I think is interesting and has been sort of an ongoing story this year is just how many China-based companies are continuing to go public. One that I noticed today is called 111. It's an eight-year-old Shanghai-based uh, online pharmacy that filed to go public on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, another company called Viomi Technology. And I think it's backed by Xiaomi, the smartphone maker, and again, Sequoia Capital, which is sort of all over all of these deals, that's going public or just filed this week to have a U.S. public offering. And another one is X Financial, which is a four-year-old Shenzhen-based peer-to-peer lending platform that has filed to raise $250 million in an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. You know, again, like not a brand new trend. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Where's the... Who's, who are the most active investors uh, on the VC side? Uh, you mentioned Sequoia in terms of looking at not just the you know uh, Chinese auto companies that are uh, looking to raise money or to potentially go public, but all these other China. Basically. It's a good question. I mean, a lot of them, Lauren, you're welcome to answer this. I was going to say, you know, I, I see Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu and a lot of these deals. As far as U.S. investors go, there aren't really as many as you would think. GGV Capital is one cross-border firm that's got offices, I think, in like Beijing and, Sh- and Shanghai and also out here in Palo Alto. Sequoia is one of the firms, one of a sort of a spate of firms that decided to embrace a global approach, partnered with Neil Shen, who is its uh, sort of China-based managing director back in 2000. And five, and they stayed is you know brilliant in hindsight. I think a lot of other firms had gone there, realized they did not know what they were doing, and and got out. And so they are sort of at a big disadvantage as you know the world turns and we see China right, rising. Right. Lauren, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, in terms of some of the earlier stage investors, I agree. GGV is one that I. Th- respect a lot. And I think that they've actually done a pretty good job of educating the Silicon Valley market on on China, DCM also. Right, right. And yes, clearly Sequoia is all over it, as well as some of the other large, large Valley funds. But but I think that Connie's right. I mean, the bulk of the capital dollars is really coming from these large strategics that have been very active in both the, the China market and now increasingly in, in U.S. companies as well. And what's a, sort of another wrinkle, these companies that are, you know, themselves huge companies, but also, you know, big strategic investors is just, you know, sometimes it seems like they've become become unstoppable. Meanwhile, in the, the U.S., we're talking about deregulation of some of our giants, you know, Facebook, um, Alphabet, Amazon. And I think, you know, on some level, each of us can sort of appreciate why that might be a good idea. But, you know, China's not talking about deregulating their sort of giants. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next five and 10 years, um, how this story uh, unfolds. Um, but, but before we go, we had one more IPO that I thought was worth um, talking about, which is SurveyMonkey, which is a 19-year-old uh, company at this point, which is hard to believe, based in Palo Alto. Still losing um, money. You know, <laughs> 
still losing money. Um, yeah. W- what do we think of this? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the, the, this company had uh, taken on debt years ago to actually put off its IPO. Now, in hindsight, I'm not sure that was such a great idea. You both probably follow this closely, more closely than I do. Lauren, I know that you've, you're sort of like steeped in SaaS uh, businesses. What do you make of this filing? You know, it's it's hard to say. It's really it's been a record year for for SaaS IPOs. I mean, the uh, the ARR multiples are off the charts. I think the the median is in sort of the eight to nine x range. But you know, you have companies like DocuSign right now that are trading for more than seventeen x. Granted, I mean, some of these more recent other SaaS IPOs have been uh, had higher growth rates and whatnot. But mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say, I I think that the market is really good. It's probably the right time for them. And and while you know some of the the metrics are not exactly where you'd hope. I do really have a lot of respect for SurveyMonkey. I mean, I think that they really pioneered the freemium model and re- in many ways kind of brought the notion of sort of viral growth and network effects to enterprise where it really didn't exist before. And they sort of really paved the way for a, way, a new wave of companies that we're all very familiar with at this point. But, you know, those are themes that we care a lot still about still in, in early stage investing. And I really think that, that SurveyMonkey was ahead of its time on that. And then also on their content marketing, I mean, they've figured out interesting ways to use data to to market themselves and to market their customers, and in doing so, market themselves. And so, there's a lot there's a lot to like. But yeah, they're they're 19 years old and they're still not profitable. So, <laughs> well, I mean, so I don't follow this uh, industry as closely, <laughs> clearly as Lauren. But I guess my question uh, for either Lauren or Connie is that they're looking to raise about $100 million, it says as much as $100 million in, in the deal. And I'm just wondering, is that I, I'm i so used to oftentimes in the automotive world uh, at a much higher dollar figure. So is this in line with um, not just what shareholders would be willing to invest into, but what the company needs to continue? And why not go to, again... Um, private investors for this? Well, I, I wish I knew the company better, to be honest. But my understanding is that the money is going to be paying off debt, that right now they're they're paying like $24 million a year just to service their debt, which is probably a little bit of a you know wake-up call maybe for the venture-backed companies in the Valley that have taken on debt in recent years. You know, that debt has terms and eventually you have to pay it and it can get sort of expensive. I mean, the whole idea is you take on debt so that you don't have to sort of dilute your equity shareholders or your you know employees, but there is a price to pay for that. So- I don't really know. One one aspect of this, the company, you know, it's, it's sort of easy to cheer about is um, SurveyMonkey was led early on by uh, Dave Goldberg, very well-liked entrepreneur who unfortunately passed away unexpectedly in Mexico in 2015 while on a family vacation. His wife is Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg, who remains a major shareholder in SurveyMonkey. She owns, I think, 9.9% of the shares. And according to the S1, she's going to be donating all of those shares. She and Dave had signed on to that giving pledge that was created by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and and Warren Buffett back in 2010. So at the last valuation, I think the company raised money maybe like in 2014, 2015 at a $2 billion valuation. From what I'm reading, it's probably going to go out at less than that. But 
assuming it was exactly at $2 billion, um, I think her stake would be worth something like $200 million. So that money would be used, presumably, to fund some initiatives that she's in, in, interested in, including helping uh, women advance uh, in their work lives and also to support people who face adversity in a variety of ways, like either through incarceration or divorce or grief or loss. So that's that's certainly a silver lining in all of this. We'll have to see uh, what happens there. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. I know that you've got to hop on a plane in a second. Kirsten, so great to be talking to you all. I wish you were here with us. Uh, and everyone, we will see you back here next week with the uh, lovely, hopefully, Alex Wilhelm, who I'm not sure who gave him the week off, but uh, <laughs> we got to get him thank back you. here. Thanks, everyone. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, And we will see you all right here next week.